0: um hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot i'm matt risby uh, good evening uh, or morning or wherever you are or whatever um and joining me uh, via the wonder of satellite technology, is Ed Davis. Uh, how the devil are you, sir?
1: I'm doing very well. I've uh, just started a newish job. Uh, it's basically working for the same company I was working for before, doing the same sort of thing. But instead of being a contractor who has to take three months off every year, uh, it's permanent and uh, slightly better paid. So mm. uh, it's been a, it's been an interesting and uh, fun new week for me.
0: Yeah, and Ed, for those of you who don't know, works for one of uh, what was voted one of the most hated companies in the world, um, Halliburton. <laughs> uh, no, he's not. He's uh, He works for EA. Um, I don't have a new job, um, so we can just kind of glide over that into into this week's film news. Um, it's been a busy week uh, in television. Um, we've had a kind of an ongoing kind of hokey-cokey with uh, David Lynch on, on the new Twin Peaks uh uh, kind of comeback, uh, he said oh, it's not going well. I'm going to pull out of directing these, and then he was like, "No, I'm not. Yes, I am. I've pulled out, and now Showtime are trying to kind of desperately get him back."
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that was news that was kind of foreshadowed when he was. I think he was in Australia for an event, and he mentioned to someone that you know contracts hadn't been signed and things weren't final, and so. But it was still uh, kind of shocking to see that series of tweets and that Facebook message explaining, but. Showtime weren't giving him enough money to, you know, do the episodes the way he felt they like needed to be done, uh, mm-hmm. and so it's just been the, uh, you know, a a kind of nerve-wracking week or so trying to see if the uh, the whole thing will actually come off.
0: Because mm, I mean, am I right in thinking that it doesn't happen without David Lynch? I mean, obviously Showtime will still want to do it with anyone, but I'm pretty sure the actors won't want to. And if no contracts have been signed, then why would they come back?
1: Yeah, I think. My understanding is that David Lynch and Mark Frost own the rights to Twin Peaks um, outright, so it kind of has to be done, at least with their blessing. So it's feasible that the show could be made without David Lynch's direct involvement if he signs off on it, and he and Mark Frost have already written all nine of the scripts that they were going to shoot. So it is possible there for for it to happen, but uh, I think Showtime seem to realize that if they don't have David Lynch's involvement, then they basically lose the interest of all the fans and the critical community who are kind of a key, you know, they're kind of a key thing because Showtime is a cable network who don't care about ratings so much they care about buzz and prestige. Mm -hmm. So if they can't have David Lynch directing it, uh, then I think they lose a huge part of the incentive for why people would actually bother watching it.
0: Here's an idea, given what we talk about quite a lot on our podcast, get into mirror what happened to his show, get rid of David Lynch and put Dan Harmon in charge <laughs> um, of, you know, just just for, you know, one episode, uh, one season.
1: Uh, and they'll just see what a disaster it is working with him in charge. And then, mm. and then we're like, okay, Lynch, you can come in.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the only way to get what you want, bring in Harman to drive the price down. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of that. And then uh, in other, other TV news, um, uh, kind of Daredevil dropped on Netflix uh, this week, and um, I personally have not got into it yet, but the reactions from uh, critics and audiences have been, holy shit, this is much better than we ever thought it was going to be.
1: Yeah, that's the sense that I'm getting as well. I think people, certainly people who have wanted to see more variety from Marvel Studios uh, in their film products have, I think, really fallen in love with the fact that the show has quite a dark and violent tone that is more in keeping with you know the comics, particularly the, the uh, Frank Miller comics uh, that were kind of a big part of reviving interest in the character in the 80s. And I think that uh, it certainly has given... Kind of a shot in the arm to the idea that you can do a lot more with that world than Marvel have been doing, sort of cinematically. Where because of the huge amount of money involved, they've and even on uh, in Agents of Shield, with the huge amount of money involved, they have played it fairly safe.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it's all speaking of dark and violent. Game of Thrones comes back uh, tonight.
1: It does, and uh, I'm very excited because this is the year where I won't know what's happening at a certain point because they're almost out of book. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, and once uh, once that happens, then uh, uh, it'll be it'll be very interesting seeing uh, a seeing you know what happens and b uh, eventually getting to read the books and kind of being like oh they did that differently or mm. oh this is more or less the same I guess George R R Martin just kept constantly telling them everything.
0: Maybe George R R Martin this this kind of uh... Uh, delay in the book being finished he was just like, he's basically a game of chicken like, he's he's not actually got a book, he's just waiting for them to make the TV show and then he's basically going to write a novelization of that
1: I think that's probably the best way to do it because I think that then suddenly he'll be like oh yeah, that's a good idea and then just mm. kind of scribble it down
0: save yourself the trouble um, unlike you, I haven't read the book so I'm just watching it each week to see what kind of awfulness can be inflicted on people I, I kind of like
1: and people that uh, it's impossible to like,
0: who do mm-hmm. really
1: well for at least a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, so yeah, we've got that kind of, so wait, it's an, a Mad Men's back as well, um, and uh, you know, that's going to be a hard one to say goodbye to, I think.
1: Mm, and it started great, I thought, I thought the first episode was very strong, and mm. uh, I, although I did feel bad that, because uh, it guest starred, uh, I believe her name is Elizabeth Reiser, who played the waitress and i just felt really bad that as soon as she showed up i thought oh from twilight and she's like she's i'm sure she's had lots of other better work but i really wish that that wasn't my first association with her
0: yeah yeah that's a tough one. um we're doing an artist profile this week um regular listeners will know um that we talked about uh richard Linklater and clint eastwood uh, on previous episodes and in this installment sees us um kind of take a like a uh drastic departure from talking about white male directors. Uh, we're talking about uh, an actress. Um, who are we talking about,
1: Ed? We're talking about uh, Susan Sarandon.
0: And why on earth have we chosen to talk about Susan Sarandon?
1: Uh, because she's a great actress, and uh, I think one of the things that we really made us really want to talk about her was we realised that she cropped up um, fairly often on our alternate 100 year- last year. I think she's probably in more of the films than any other performer. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if not, she's certainly up there. And uh, I think she's a, a genuinely kind of iconic actress who I think maybe, you know, is, is great, but maybe doesn't get as much attention as she deserves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll kind of use uh, talking about her career as a kind of jumping off point to talk about a lot of things, uh, a lot about kind of maybe gender politics in Hollywood um, and, you know, probably depress you uh, <laughs> <laughs> at home. Um, because you know it's not a great state of affairs, but anyway uh we're going to start by talking about um the film that was kind of a breakthrough um but also kind of falls into our category of um kind of most successful and most successful by a considerable margin um because it is the uh kind of like hard to kill <laughs> impossible to end its cinematic run um Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's the most successful because, I think as I alluded to, um, it has not been off cinematic release, is that correct, since it came out?
1: That is correct. I believe this year will be its 40th anniversary of being in cinemas somewhere. Uh, Fox have never officially pulled its cinematic release and because it's kind of a midnight movie favourite and it has the whole um, performance aspect of its its cult appeal, uh, it's constantly been booked, and as which is why... Uh, it has an, an adjusted for inflation take of somewhere like four hundred million dollars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy how that's done all right. And Richard O'Brien, uh you know, had to do the Crystal Maze because he did make he made no money out of it somehow. I really don't know how you know that kind of injustice um, was served upon him. That's terrible. But anyway, that's a side point. Well, you know, our Richard O'Brien artist profile is later in the year. (laughs) Um, But yeah, um, Susan Sarandon, she wasn't in the original cast uh, for the the kind of stage cast. Um, Why do you think they kind of cast her in uh, the role of Janet?
1: I think that she has a, you know, this was only a few years into her career. And I think if you look at some of the work she'd done before, like something like um, Joe with uh, Peter Boyle or uh, the uh, the front page the Billy Wilder film which she was in the year before uh, she was someone who has a certain kind of all American girl quality to her particularly in uh, particularly in the front page where she's starring in what is essentially kind of a period piece and a, a uh, attempt to do kind of a 70s version of a screwball 30s comedy um, and I think that that quality that idea of her Having kind of a classical American beauty and this slightly this kind of air of uh, naivete to her probably really appealed to uh, to the makers of the film because it does fit the idea of trying to make a uh, kind of homage slash parody of uh, films from the fifties.
0: It's uh, unusual for like her kind of her breakthrough came when it did. Um, because she's kind of essentially the young starlet in in that role, but she was kind of nearly thirty when when the film was made. Um, she'd kind of paid her dues quite a bit. She'd made a lot of smaller films, and some of the films you mentioned, she kind of spent time on a soap opera. Um, but the Rocky Horror Picture Show didn't immediately elevate her to kind of a list status, did it?
1: No, but I think that that again is kind of plays into the the, the way the films. Uh success kind of grew over time. It was this cult success that a lot of people saw grad- gradually over the years. So I think that because she was so... She was kind of a key part of of this iconic film. It, it kind of grew over time rather than being kind of an out-and-out smash. But I think as the cult grew, that kind of raised her profile quite a bit.
0: Mm, mm. Um, given that the, the kind of unique chemistry of Rocky Horror Picture Show... Is so kind of like finely balanced between uh, kind of great songs, uh, kind of outrageous camp, and just kind of borderline lunacy. Um, What what does Sarandon bring to the mix? Uh,
1: I think that she has the perfect balance of you know certainly in the early part of the film, such as uh, the song people have just heard, uh, uh, "Damn It, Janet." She has this kind of very wide-eyed. very kind of small-time American, small-town small American quality to her where she does seem like the sort of characters you would get in, uh, you know, 50s teen dramas and comedies and things like that who just doesn't really understand anything about the world. But as the film goes along and as uh, kind of the spell of Frank and Furter falls over everyone and they all start to give in to their kind of uh, depraved desires in a very fun and uh, campy way, uh, mm-hmm. she kind of lets you know, in stuff like, something like uh, Touch, Touch, Touch Me, she kind of lets that loose a bit more. I think that, yeah. that the, her ability to be convincing in both those things is a, a key part to why uh, her role in the film works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's a film I kind of didn't see until kind of relatively recently for the first time. Um, but uh, that film is is great if you can kind of divorce yourself from Uh, some of the tomfoolery that goes along with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you and I, uh, a couple of years ago, tried to do an episode about Whiffnitl and I, um, which... Twice. uh, Yeah, yeah, we seemed to be completely cursed by technical failings and we just decided not to even bother with it in the end. (laughs) But Mm. in in that, um, we talked about how that film is a film that has been completely overshadowed by its cult and how... Uh, you know, the people who quote the lines and do the drinking games and stuff overshadows what is actually a very, you know, finely written and, and really nicely played uh, comedy and a dissection of a kind of poisonous friendship But everyone mm-hmm. just kind of wants to shout, Bring me the finest wines in all of Christendom and stuff like that. You know, uh, well, and I think the same thing for me, the same thing has happened with uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show where I didn't see it for very many years because in my head it was just all about the kind of the nonsense of the, the live performances which i know are, are you know are fun for people to perform but i think they have that that effect of making it quite kind of uh kind of imposing for people who haven't already seen the film and mm. quite, it, but it kind of makes you feel like so the only way i can see this film properly is if i have people like screaming lines and dancing and drag in front of it and so uh it kind of has it just kind of has this uh let this kind of wall around it that uh, took uh, a long time for me. Basically, up until this episode, for me to kind of like say, "Okay, I'll watch Rocky Horror."
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's I, I. I kind of think that like the people who go and see the, especially the stage show, are kind of like so kind of fanatical about it um, that it makes it very kind of uh, intimidating to go to that as your first experience. Hmm. And kind of everyone who's in there has kind of seen it probably thousands of, well, no, not thousands of times, but, you know, they've seen it a lot and they know it kind of back to front. Um, so, like, I'm kind of quite pleased that I, the first time I watched it and, you know, was kind of, uh, you know, just with one other person just watching it and kind of enjoying it. What well, it is, I didn't feel like I lost any of the uh, kind of excitement of it or the kind of luridness of it. Um, it's still kind of... Strikes me every time I watch it, I'm surprised at just on how perverse that film is, <laughs> and uh, yet yeah, how and you know, still how good the songs are. Um, yeah, for, for,
1: uh, I think for me, uh, something like Time Warp is kind of the film in microcosm where Time Warp, in the you know, the, the context of the film, is a kind of a funny, silly song, and then and you know, it, it's quite fun, even though uh, the delivery of the line the time warp really <laughs> pisses me off it's just such a horrible delivery but like that song has you know escaped and become bigger than the film in some ways and it's kind of become this kind of garish uh thing that people kind of embrace and sing and you know that spaced made jokes about um and like that is kind of the same thing with the film because the film itself is you know a really funny comedy and a really well-observed uh Kind of loving mocking or mockery of uh, cheesy sci fi and horror, but uh, it's become this like much bigger thing where you know you have to dress up and everything,
0: mm. yeah. And hence why we're recording this podcast in kind of stockings and suspenders.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, we do that every week, mm. it is an audio well, medium,
0: <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that's by far our kind of, what's what's kind of nearer, uh, like it's always going to be our most successful. Uh, film what's kind of next on the list uh
1: i think the her? i think the closest one after that is probably enchanted mm. in which she plays the the villain the kind of evil queen um where which is even then it's like is there is literally like 300 million dollars difference between the two of them because i think the kind of roles she tends to gravitate towards are always uh a lot kind of smaller scale and you know she's not even though she's a jobbing actress, who, who will take you know pretty much any role going because you know you need to eat, you need to work. Um, she hasn't reached that point in her career where she'll like play the mum in a Transformers movie or something.
0: No, no, it can't be far off given they're making another Transformers <laughs> film. Um, but yeah, um, in fact, I kind of read an interesting kind of interview with Susan Sarandon saying that she was kind of going going through kind of phases that she would paid like three alcoholics in a row and kind of three people who died in a row and kind of now it's going to get to the point where she's playing kind of grandma roles uh, Mm. for a bit because she is kind of uh, nearly 70.
1: Yeah, although it was uh, was weird when she was cast in Tammy, the film from last year with Melissa McCarthy, where she played Melissa McCarthy's grandmother and there's only like maybe 30 years difference between the two of them. So, you know, so they
0: must have had to age her up considerably.
1: Yeah, they did. But even so, you just kind of look at it and think, I mean, it's not, you know, Dick Van Dyke playing a guy older than his, being older than his own father in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but it's still not the uh, the greatest kind of grandmother casting.
0: No. Well, like, you know, Mancurian Candidate with Angela Lansbury and Robert Harvey when she's his mum and she's, what, like a year older than him or <laughs> something. <must have> <laughs> Fucking ludicrous. Um, but yeah, didn't seem to affect that anyway um, in terms of uh, the kind of the, the kind of oddity in uh, Susan Sarandon's filmography, um, what have we chosen for that?
1: Uh, we've gone with the Tony Scott film The Hunger
0: trust me, trust you, I
1: did trust you and look what happened it's a bruise, it will fade I know it's a bruise, look I'm going to ask you one more time What have you done to me?
0: I've given you something you never dare dream of. What? Everlasting life. And we've chosen this one because it's kind of like her only kind of really notable out-and-out kind of genre horror.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously there are horror horror elements to Rocky Horror because it's in the title, but um, that's that's obviously more campy and comedy, whereas this is very much a kind of very... Uh, lurid uh, early 80s horror film
0: Mm. and um, do you think that like Susan Sarandon has has not done a lot more genre stuff because she's just drawn to good parts, Uh, someone who's had a career as kind of uh, as long and as kind of varied as her should have like way more kind of uh, things like this in her in her kind of CV or do you think it's just being drawn to a particular type of role that doesn't lend itself to horror
1: uh, I think it's probably the the some of the people she got to work with because obviously she was co-starring with uh, Catherine Deneuve and uh, and David Bowie. So I think that that was probably a great appeal to starring with two people who aren't really associated with horror roles. I mean, you know, Catherine Deneuve was in repulsion, but she's not exactly someone you think of as a screen queen.
0: Mm. So I think and it's we,
1: worth going. Sorry. So uh, yeah, I was just going to say. So it's like, it's it's not like she was. You know, going to work with John Carpenter or something. You know, she was working with people who didn't traditionally work in the horror genre. And I think that was probably at least part of the attraction of it.
0: Mm, Plus, as well, it probably can't have hurt that she was going out with David Bowie at the time.
1: Yeah. So she she had an in there.
0: Yeah. Um, How do you think it stands up now, kind of like, however, like 30 odd years later?
1: Uh, I think it's very great at showing how good Tony Scott was with atmosphere. I mean, the whole film plays like the sex scene from Top Gun at feature length, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you have the kind of the um, lesbian sex scenes between Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve, but the whole thing is very kind of soft focus and, you know, billowing curtains and things like that. And it feels like a dry run for what he would do with Top Gun, which is essentially uh, reinvent the way that big budget and kind of mainstream films were would be shot for about 10 years and you know had a had a huge influence there this it, it feels very much kind of like a even though it's a, a you know a weird little vampire film that has people's faces kind of imploding in the end um it kind of it feels like a, an interesting historical touchstone in uh, the advance of of it, certainly of Tony Scott's career and of uh, as a result of kind of main, mainstream american cinema
0: she made this film only a couple of years after Uh, a film we've talked about uh, on the alternate 100 atlantic city which Mm -hmm. is notable because um it's kind of her first great performance but it was also kind of marked her first oscar nomination uh, for best actress um um do you think that that's kind of reflected by the types of films that she was doing after the nomination um because i mean the hunger is one of like kind of five or six films she made before she had like the witches of eastwick which was a big kind of crossover hit.
1: Uh, I think it probably gave her a lot more options to try things. I think mm. that getting an oscar nomination allows you to make a film like Pahunker, which is w- could be seen as kind of, you know, very kind of down market and if it was something you were doing early in your career it might be something that uh you would maybe not ever outgrow whereas if you're already established as a serious Artist then the idea of taking an excursion into horror or any other genre kind of feels like uh, an interesting choice, especially if it seem- it's something that you don't seem to be doing for a big pay payday. Um, mm. Unlike, say, you know, when Halle Berry did Catwoman or something, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't think she was making a huge amount of money from uh, from starring in uh, in in The Hunger.
0: Mm. There was a kind of like a run of um, kind of. Uh, Oscar winners who then did a really bad kind of action film straight afterwards, and Halle Berry doing Catwoman was one. I seem to remember Charlize Theron did Aeon Flux after she won her Oscar. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, that's um, right.
0: Um, I'm sure there was another couple of examples um, of that. I don't know why that's got relevance to anything really. It's just got to show that, like, even though your options are open, the film you signed on for just after you did the one you're going to risk Oscar for, you never know how it's going to turn out, dear.
1: No, and I think in a lot of cases they just kinda of look at it and think, This'll buy me a house. <laughs> This'll give me security for a couple of years. Mm. Whereas I think in the case of the hunger it was more kind of like, you know, I get to be in a film with my boyfriend and I get to uh you know, kind of play around with this very interesting and weird uh kind of psychosexual vampire horror movie starring a great French actress.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um Susan Sarandon has always uh, kind of used her sexuality in a lot of her performances um but kind of unlike a lot of other actors actresses um always seems to be the one in control of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I think that she is certainly in things like, you know, uh Atlantic City which you know we talked about on The Alternate 100, she definitely seems to be even though she's the, you know, junior partner in that relationship with her and um, and uh, Bert Lancaster, she is someone who has has power and agency, even though she's a, a character who's you know very low on the socioeconomic ladder. She's trying to kind of break in as a as a dealer at a uh, at a casino, and she's in a kind of rundown uh, in Atlantic City. It's kind of most rundown. She still is mm-hmm. someone who is trying to exert kind of power over her own life. I think you can yeah.
0: see that in a lot of her roles. Mm, absolutely, and even though um, she, you know, a lot of her roles are uh, kind of playing kind of sexualized, sexualised, probably not wrong, wrong, right word—kind uh, of playing kind of sexy, uh, uh, kind of characters. Um, it never feels kind of cheap or kind of crass, uh, apart from when it's the Banger Sisters. But you know, <laughs> we'll kind of get round to that. Um, Kind of is that just? Is, do you think that's her kind of uh, off-screen personality kind of dictating that, or do you think that there's something in the way that she uh, performs that directors and kind of people look for, and then it's the casting? Uh,
1: I do. I think they. I do get the sense that her off-screen personality affects it, and it's what she is kind of the kind of roles that she's drawn to as a result. I mean, if you look at something like Bulger, and which was also on the one hundred. Um, There, her kind of sexuality is a very key part of it because it's that whole idea that you know her, you know, being in sexual relationships with ball players in some way can help make them great. Mm. Um, And I think, but then again, it's like she kind of chooses the ball players that she, you know, tries to help get make great. And also, it comes from her own character as being someone who loves baseball and loves being part of the whole thing. So, Mm -hmm. I, I think there you can definitely see kind of the strength of her personality. Enforcing it, uh, forcing itself onto the role.
0: Mm. It's it's kind of uh, um, fascinating in in kind of that context, Ball Durham, because or as written, um, that the character of Annie in Ball Durham, played by someone else, and with the you know not quite as light a touch and uh, directorially, that is essentially could be read, read as uh, the you know the village bike essentially, mm. you know, the the the, the fan who, who sleeps with one baseball player a season um, in the hope that it will make them a good player, but it's something completely different and, and you kind of you don't see a lot of those roles for women.
1: No, I think in, certainly in kind of modern, mainstream cinema, you know, the idea of sexuality and the idea of agency seem to be kind of divided, mm-hmm. you know, characters are either there to be to have sex with, with male characters or they're there to kind of drive the plot and in her case, there and in a lot of her roles in the sort of the eighties and the nineties, those two things are kind of very uh, strongly intertwined.
0: Mm. Um, I, I'm kind of surprised that like she's not had more of an influence on uh, kind of uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, other performances mm. like that, and that so many uh, characters in other films that are kind of similar just go the other way and become you know, two-dimensional kind of like fuck jars, basically. (laughs)
1: Uh, I do... It does make me wonder if it's kind of to do with, again, the fact that she seems to be someone who's very has a very clear sense of her own, uh, of what she wants to bring to a role and the kind of role she wants to take. If it's the fact that she, you know, brings that out into the roles that she's assigned and she kind of helps shape them in that way Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, people writing roles that fit her those kind of skill sets that she brings to it um because if it was a case that people were writing better roles so that she'd play them then you'd expect to see better roles in general whereas i think it's probably more a case that a lot of the time she takes on a role and just improves it by her you know her uh personality
0: Mm. and talking about personality she is someone who is very vocal uh about kind of political uh persuasion and her kind of uh her beliefs, generally, um, as evidenced by the fact that she was in uh, Team America as <laughs> as one of uh, Hollywood's uh, liberal elite. Um, uh, how much has that kind of uh, affected her um, her kind of career choices? Given that, uh, also twinned with the fact that for a long time she was in a relationship with Tim Robbins, and they were kind of between them uh, a kind of a liberal powerhouse couple.
1: I think that probably affects the kind of roles she wants to take on. I think she probably she would be unlikely to take a role in a pro uh, a pro life drama, for example, or something that had a real kind of strong stance on that that didn't conform with her views. Um, But I think it probably also kind of limited her potential because she was a very outspoken star who wasn't kind of a huge box office draw. In the same mm. way that, say, you know, a George Clooney is someone who is very outspoken about his liberal beliefs, but you know, is kind of a huge, a huge, huge star who can get people in to see films. Um, I think that uh, in Hollywood, people's uh, opinion that people are allowed to spout their opinions as long as they're making people a lot of money, and then if uh, if they're spouting their opinions and they don't make people a lot of money, people just kind of look at them and say, "Well, uh, you know, I don't really." think that you'll help me because a lot of you just kind of rubbed up half the country the wrong way
0: We now have to regrettably talk about uh, Mr Anden's worst film Um, and we were kind of torn on this because I would say she's had a very long career a lot of kind of uh, entries on her filmography Um, so we let um, the internet decide what her worst film was um, by going on Rotten Tomatoes which is something that we do not condone uh, but in uh, this case, we kind of had to do it to kind of split a vote. Um, and what is uh, propping up the pile, Ed?
1: Uh, it is the 2013 comedy, um, The Big Wedding.
0: Well, uh, it is isn't. Oh, no. Uh, one, two, three... It's like a convention.
1: Donald Robert Griffin, what have you done? Oh, my God. He's plastered.
0: I'm sorry. It's gonna I like you know we Oh my god. One minute we're sleeping, D- the next minute boom boom
1: tri-boom, boom, tri-boom, boom 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 boom. Oh, excuse me.
0: Um I didn't see this ed <laughs> because uh, I didn't really want to. Sure. Um you had to um, for for kind of like well. So I didn't have to basically. Um, tell us about it.
1: Yeah, I was the sin eater for this one. I had to just go through it, so I don't have to. Mm. Um, uh, the the Big Wedding is an American remake of a French comedy, so you're already... That's a warning sign straight away. Mm-hmm. In which uh, Diane Keaton and Robert De Niro at his laziest... Um, people have just heard a clip of him kind of pretending to be drunk, and basically that's how he sounds for the entire film. It's not actually apparent that he's drunk, he just sounds really sleepy for the entire two hours. Um uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, Diane Keaton and him were married and they got divorced years before. And they're uh, three kids, uh, played by Catherine Heigel, uh, Topher Grace, and uh, a young British actor whose name I've forgotten. I'll look up in a minute. Um, uh, you know, they've all kind of gone their separate ways and they don't really get on. But the young adopted son is getting married, so they kind of come together. and uh, Ben Robert, Barnes. Ben Barnes, yeah who uh he's getting married the his uh white his his fiance's family are from no sorry his uh, his fiancee is Amanda Seafried. his family are from Colombia they're coming over his mother his, his biological mother's very religious and uh, so everyone has to pretend that Diane Keaton and Robert De Niro are still married so Susan Sarandon who is Robert De Niro's uh, current wife uh, has to kind of like step aside and she drives away from the film half an hour in and I really, really hoped that she wouldn't have to come back and suffer for more of it. Uh, but she does and it's terrible. <laughs> it's a really awful farce. It's not very funny. It's very poorly staged and paced. Some of the plot points are ridiculous and stupid such as the fact that Topher Grace is a nearly 30-year-old virgin doctor who everyone is uh, madly in love with and Catherine Heigel makes jokes about him having a huge dick even though they're brother and sister. Um... Catherine Heigl, uh, <laughs> the, the big kind of mystery is like, Catherine Heigl hates babies and she's broken up with her husband, but uh, she like, throws up at various points throughout the film and like, it's like, oh, I bet she's pregnant. I bet that's going to get revealed at some point. And the film plays it like a big mystery until an hour and eight minutes in, even though it's immediately <laughs> apparent from literally the first time she shows up on screen. And like, the whole film is just so horribly misguided and awful. That um, I spent a good portion of it rolling on the floor and screaming, just because <laughs> like I just kind of looked and it was like this has got another half an hour to go. I need to do something to distract myself from this horrible film.
0: Um, I really want to see this now. <laughs> it sounds fucking amazing.
1: It is. It is awful. But and it all but is like the worst thing about it is that it has so many talented people. <laughs> it has so many people who should be able to invest this with something interesting in some sort of life but they just completely fail. And I think it, that's kind of worse than if, say, it starred a bunch of unknowns. Mm. If it starred a bunch of unknowns, you could completely dismiss it, but because it's an all-star cast who are completely flailing, uh, it just comes across even worse.
0: You know, I wonder how many Oscars the cast has got between them.
1: Uh, at least four, because there's uh, De Niro, Keaton, Sarandon, and Robin Williams, who's uh, got a small part as a priest. Um, oh wow! Which was confusing to me when the trailer started because I assumed it was a sequel to that other terrible film in which he played a priest. I think it was called uh, "License to Wed" or something. But yeah, but but it's completely separate. And like, and what's even worse about it is that they make lots of jokes that are kind of meant to be kind of like raunchy, um, kind of Apatow kind of things. Are they are trying to be like really acerbic and dark? And they, the like the the opening five minutes, I think they say the word cunnilingus like ten times, and it's Robert De Niro going down on Susan Sarandon, and it's just you know really kind of awkward and weird. And
0: I definitely want to see that (laughs) film. Like it just, it just sounds like it's got everything that I could possibly want from the film. (laughs)
1: Uh, I really feel as I'm doing a bad job of dissuading you. Um, yeah. It is it is, it is really awful. I think that's kind of the only major selling point for it, is just seeing how terrible it is. It's the sort of thing that I watched it and I thought, oh, I really wish that, like, how did this maid or the flop house watch this at some point? Because they would make this very entertaining in a way mm. that it currently isn't.
0: Um, what's Sarandon bring to the party? Or the wedding? Uh,
1: she's a kind of playing a role that she she basically plays a lot uh, in kind of recent years, which is uh, kind of the older sexier woman, um, as you kind of see in things like uh, 30 Rock and uh, all, and uh, that's my boy, both of which she plays a teacher who had sex with one of her students when she was younger uh, or when they were both younger rather, Um, Mm. or, you know, mother lover, the uh, Lonely Island single and video. Um, and, but, you know, mainly she's kind of there to be kind of sparky and uh, play the kind of completely put-upon person who dislikes the fact that she's being excluded from the wedding in her official capacity as the adoptive, the, the kind of stepmother of the groom, but uh, also is catering the thing. So she still has to be there in her kind of uh, whites and just kind of handing out the food to everyone she's actually related to.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a definite kind of trend, like you say, about her kind of moving more towards the, uh, I'm going to be crass, uh, milf roles. Um, and I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that, you know, as I said, she kind of found success fairly late and she's incredibly sexy. Mm. Um, but it's kind of worrying uh, how often it crops up. I mean, uh, I don't really know where it started, but I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, Alfie, she plays that role in Alfie. Uh, Mr. Woodcock uh, is uh, kind of a film that is is essentially based around that idea. Um, the
1: Banger Sisters, which we already mentioned,
0: yeah, Banger Sisters. Um, it's kind of fizzling out a bit now, but that kind of it, it almost felt a little bit like here is an older actress; people still want to fuck her. Let's just cast her in these roles.
1: I do, yeah. That probably is a big. Part of it. I also think that of the kind of two roles they're offered to older women in Hollywood, <laughs> um, which is like grandmothers and MILFs, as we've said, um, that's probably the one that gives you a lot more to do. Mm-hmm. And it's probably uh, makes you a little more active in terms of what the actual plot involves. Whereas, you know, just kind of going, you know, you turn 45 and suddenly you have to play grandmothers is kind of a, you know, it, it, it inherently kind of limits what you're going to do in the plot.
0: Mm. which kind of opens up the whole idea about uh this kind of huge gender inequality in hollywood um and the, which is underpinned by the central idea that uh, uh careers of 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 women is just much shorter and limited mm. uh kind of men go on to keep playing romantic leads you know way you know when they're way past their kind of uh uh, uh kind of prime I guess um, and then just get cast against oh, like younger women kind of continually um, and it just does not work at all the other way around I mean people don't think much of Sean Connery for example uh, and and Catherine Zeta-Jones being lovers in a film which they were in Entrapment I think the, the age difference was like I don't know 162 years <laughs> but like no one thinks that that's a thing because it's so much easier for uh kind of them to keep pushing uh I say them, I mean Hollywood studios keep pushing kind of older male sex symbols, but then to discard uh uh actresses as soon as uh the kind of looks start to fade, which is kind of horrifying.
1: It does kind of make me wonder if her shift towards playing those kind of roles um you know, part of it's probably just, again, financial working actress. She's got to try and, you know, take the roles that come her way. But I wonder if part of it was maybe her trying to, in some way, be transgressive against that, you know, that orthodoxy. You know she's kind no, of,
0: Nothing about that's my boy is transgressive against orthodoxy. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, probably not. But I think, you know, maybe in some of those roles, she kind of takes them on just because, you know, certainly if you think of her performance in 30 Rock, for example, mm there she's, you know, deliberately making fun of that idea and, you know, uh, exploring it in kind of a comedic way. And maybe, you know, part of it was that, yeah, like say, that role is mildly better than just playing grandmothers. But, you know, mm. taking several of those roles, you know, kind of almost amounts to taking making a statement saying, why aren't there more of these kind of roles available to women like as they get older?
0: Mm. yeah. yeah. But can we think of any other... Um... I mean, you could probably like look at a decades worth of actors and say they're still working now, or kind of that they've continued. But then look at a decades worth of actresses, and it's kind of depressing how how many kind of fall away. think about like the seventies, which is, as everyone knows, a, a kind of period that we you know love. Um, and think about the actors that came out of that, and you know how much longer they kept working for. And think about the actresses. Think about people like Faye Dunaway, whose career. You know, she's still alive. She's still a great actress. And, you know, she's just kind of, like, cast cast aside. And Diane Cannon, um, Sally Field kept working. Um, you know, uh, Diane Keaton kind of keeps her hand in. Oh, she's in The, the Big Wedding. <laughs> um, which is, you know, like, it, it, it just isn't the same, is it?
1: Mm, and also, I think, in a lot of cases, certainly a case of, like, Diane Keaton she, once she reached a certain age, she just basically kept, she has kept playing the same role over and over again, which is Annie Hall getting progressively older. (laughs) You know, she Mm. plays the kind of kooky older woman and she just hasn't really displayed any, like in the 70s, you know, she was both Annie Hall, she was in, you know, a lot of Woody Allen films, but she was also in The Godfather where she wasn't kooky and she was very much, that's a very kind of very serious role um, in a very kind of dark film and as her career went away those kind of more complex roles disappeared and she was basically left with the option to just play you know the love interest to jack nicholson in something's got to give which is essentially Mm. just kooky older woman
0: i mean it's in for kind of uh uh kind of women of of that age uh, you really kind of glenn close maybe Meryl Streep obviously is just doing Oscar winning parts now she doesn't really fuck around with anything else <laughs> um, but there just there really isn't anyone doing anything like Susan Sarandon at this point is there
1: not on not on film I mean something that I think a lot of people have talked about recently is that how the roles for women on television have got a lot more diverse in, in recent years even though the kind of Sopranos and all of that you know that that. Kind of premium drama thing has been very male dominated. So things like, you know, The Shield, um, which is a show I, I love and I know that you've you've watched quite a bit of. Um, mm-hmm. That does, you know, that that gave uh, Glenn Close a career, a, a role kind of late in her career that completely, you know, reinvented who she could be. She could be this tough police captain that got her her role on Damages, where she kind of, you know, dominated that show for six years or however long it ran. Um, I think that there's a lot more potential for those sort of roles on television, uh, whereas film has continued to, you know, just kind of abandon actresses once they get to a certain point or uh, forces them into, you know, maybe two or three different roles.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah.
1: Unless it's, you know, unless you're someone like Jackie Weaver who just becomes... uh, Famous, like super famous, uh, or, or moderately famous later in life, and so doesn't can kind of pick and choose roles.
0: Mm. Is she in the big wedding?
1: She is not. No, mm. I just had to double check. No, I don't think she is. Uh it's a shame. It's a shame. Um,
0: yeah. So the big wedding, uh, Susan Sern's, uh kind of worst film in, in the same way that we kind of had uh, several options to choose for a worst film. There are quite a lot of options to choose. Uh, for, a, for a best film I mean we, we've obviously talked about Ball Durham and Atlantic City at length before so we kind of excluded those off the bat and we could kind of talk about many of her films with the, the great uh, Paul Schrader film like Sleeper um, Twilight uh, another film she did with Paul Newman's, you know really great um, probably her most iconic role something like Thelma and Louise we mm. could have easily considered um, but what have we chosen to talk about
1: uh, we've gone for Dead Man Walking
0: I just let it flow. Tell my mom I loved her. I talked to each of the boys. I hate saying goodbye. I just told him if I get a chance, I call right before I go. What, what is it? My mom kept saying it was I tell her I should she always regret that I got involved with him. I didn't want to thinking that. It was something you said, I could have walked away. I didn't. Yeah, Dead Man Walking. Uh, Dead Man Walking. Imagine <laughs> if it was Christopher Walken, it would be much better.
1: Zombie comedy starring Christopher Walken.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, let's pitch it to yeah. SNL. Mm, yeah, they'll do it. Um, it's a it's kind of a heavy hitting drama um she won uh, her Oscar for it um i kind it. it sounds bad to say that she won her Oscar as in a she was owed it and b that's it now once well, she only won that that was it um but no um yeah she won best actress for it uh film directed by Tim robbins um starring Sean Penn it was kind of a real kind of weighty drama, which does have its uh, moments of kind of uh, heavy handedness um but ultimately it's just kind of two hours of just rock solid acting.
1: Yeah, I think uh, certainly in terms of her, her filmography, I think it probably is up there as her best performance, certainly in terms of anchoring a film, which is not mm-hmm. something that she uh, got to do a lot. I mean, a lot of the roles we've talked about tonight have been roles where she was, you know, kind of a supporting actor who, or a supporting present who kind of livened up, a, a, you know, an already solid film or made you even more depressed when you're watching The Big Wedding. Um mm-hmm. But this is, you know, this is one of her rare instances of playing, you know, un, uh, a kind of undoubtedly a leading role where she is the main character who is kind of the one who has to carry this entire story of a of a, a, a nun who is uh, kind of called in by a death row prisoner uh, who you know, wants help with his final appeal before he gets he gets put to death uh, and who becomes kind of fascinated with his situation and tries to help him.
0: Mm. It's an astonishing performance, isn't it? I, it mm. Kind of, it's a film that I'd seen a long time ago, um, but revisited uh, for this podcast, and um, it's still, even though it's, it does kind of re, like it is a great film. Don't get me wrong, but it does retread a lot of kind of uh, um, uh, kind of tropes of that kind of prison drama. Um, it, it still packs quite a punch and is, is, is kind of quite gruelling.
1: Mm. I think a large part of that is she does a really good job of making you believe that that character would be would want to help this guy even though he's accused of doing a terrible thing and he, even though she goes in assuming the worst about him um, mm. and even as the characters around her start to kind of wonder what the hell she's doing trying to uh, help this guy who to all the world looks like a complete monster um, I think she sells the idea of someone who kind of fervently believes that there is good in you know, everyone
0: And it's is the total opposite of the roles we've been talking about. Is a woman who's um, in obviously they talk about it in the film. She's she's never had a sexual relationship with anyone, um, never had any kind of physical intimacy with anyone, Um, and that is not something you would instantly uh, um, kind of attach to someone who has had like roles. Kind of well, I mean, it wasn't that long after Paul Durham that she made that film. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of shows her kind of like uh, just not be afraid to do something completely opposite of what she's doing, and I don't mean uh, that this kind of trend of uglying up for a role. It's just going against completely what has kind of got you where you are.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, at least in part it probably was to do with the fact that you know she was she had been in a relationship with Tim Robbins for a long time, so I think that was probably a great deal of trust involved there in in her trusting that he would, you know, provide a role that she could do well and him trusting that you know, she would be, she had it within her to go against, you know, pretty much all of the instincts that she developed over time.
0: Mm. Yeah. And where do you think it stands now, kind of looking back at it uh, in, in her whole career? Is that, is that what's going kind to of define her as much as we say it's kind of her, probably her best Straight up performance. Uh, do you think that'll define her, or do you think something like Thelma Louise, uh, something that's a bit more kind of accessible and light
1: might? Uh, I think, yeah, I think she'll probably be remembered more for the kind of the Thelma Louises of her career than for Dead Man Walking, just because I think at this point it feels like Dead Man Walking has maybe not been forgotten, but it's definitely not a film that people talk about a huge amount. Um, it's it's kind of notable for being this kind of Oscar Powerhouse at the time and something of a hit, but it's not it doesn't have that kind of icon iconic quality of, you know, when Felman and Louise came out, everyone was doing parodies of it. You mm. know? Like Wayne's World pretty much ended with a parody of it. Um things like uh, Animaniacs did parodies of it. It was a thing that, even though it wasn't a film that made a huge kind of commercial impact, it was it had kind of shockwaves going throughout the culture and it became uh you know kind of the shorthand everyone knew even if you had not seen felman louise even if like me you were six you knew what felman louise was um mm. you know i think that that is is something that's kind of going to reverberate throughout the culture um as will rocky horror just because uh it will keep playing in cinemas until the heat death of the universe
0: mm. absolutely um and when it does there'll just be there'll be just like people laying on the floor in a mansion taken off into space. <laughs> that is kind of how it will end. Um how depressed are you at the state of uh kind of gender inequality in, in especially Hollywood?
1: Uh pretty much always depressed by it. It's a terrible thing. Um mm. I don't know if um you've been reading I know that you, you read the dissolve every so often. Um, they have a uh a weekly feature basically about uh, how how was kind of the film world, world treating women uh, in any given week? And uh, it's always very entertaining because it's written by um, Rachel Handler, who is their, their news editor, who's like very, very funny and um, kind of very staunchly feminist and interesting writer. But it's always really depressing because <laughs> uh, pretty much every week there's just stories of, you know, uh, female directors not getting work, even though there's a lot of them in the directors' guilds, um, lack of representation, there's just lots of. Uh, horribly depressing things going on all the time. Yeah,
0: it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? It's, I mean, yeah, it's 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 kind of like the all the things you, that you have a problem with in society are kind of like amplified when it comes to uh, uh, the kind of the, the movie business because well, that's the kind of prism we're viewing it through.
1: Like uh, Will Smith, who I think has almost never had a white romantic interest in any of his films, mm. even though he's... until recently. Yeah. Until
0: the focus but then the fact that that's a big deal is just depressing.
1: Yeah, and the fact that he had to do it in a film that was made for for him a lower budget, and that was kind of him explicitly kind of moving away from blockbuster roles into kind of more uh, kind of low key drama, uh, dramatic comedies. I think uh, that says volumes about the 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 kind of imbalance in the uh, film industry and their unwillingness to tackle. Things that should not be taboos in 2015, but there mm. are because uh, there's a lot of racists in the world, and there are lots of countries in which a film won't play if uh, the lead one of the lead actors is black and one of the lead actresses is white. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's one of those things that's just really uh, awful and terrible to see. Um, and but also, like, what's even worse is that there's so much evidence that that doesn't have to be the way it is. You know, every time a film comes out that stars where the main character is a woman and it's not kind of a rom-com every time there's a hunger games or something, or there's a bridesmaids, you know, basically something that comes along that says, Hey, women will come and see films that aren't, you know, Nicholas Sparks adaptations. Then the, you think, Oh, maybe things will change now. Cause there's more, there's, there's proof here that things can be done in a different way. And then it never happens. Hollywood Mm. always is just like immediately. It's like, oh, this is a surprise. It's like, yeah, and it was a surprise the last fifty times it happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is, yeah, it's just kind of slow to learn, aren't they?
1: And you know the fact that we're going to be what fifteen Marvel films deep before we get Captain Marvel, where you know there's the main character is a woman, and apparently you can't have Black Widow even though she's basically the co-leading. the Winter Soldier. She can't have a film on her own, you know. It just mm. kind of reinforces these things.
0: Yeah, that's depressing. Really depressing. Um, and what a note to leave you on, <laughs> uh, dear listeners. Um, kind of just sit there, kind of like gazing into the distance, kind of just horrified by uh, the, you know, the, the times we live in, where. You know, Michael Bay can introduce all his female characters in his films with a close up of their bottom. Um and you know, not have to worry about what they're saying or doing. Um let's just do that. Um four times in a row. Four times. Um just think about that. And uh, you know, cry to yourself. Pretty bad. Um We're doing something Next week, and, and and kind of not next week. Next uh, artist profile we're doing, um, we are kind of uh, continuing to make good on our promise of not featuring exclusively white males. Um, who are we talking about next time, Ed?
1: Uh, we're going to be talking about Ang Lee.
0: Yes, um, which should be a fascinating um, episode. He says optimistically, <laughs> um, just generally due to the fact that he's, you know, made masterpieces in. Uh, two different countries, in two different languages, uh, mainly by working with the same people, which is kind of weird. Um, and he's also made some really fucking strange films.
1: Yeah, and he has also um, very rarely worked in the same genre more than once. Yes. Uh, he's, he's someone who's kind of bounced around from doing everything from kind of literary adaptations to comic book movies to uh, kind of very small-scale dramas.
0: Two massive uh, martial arts feasts. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, it should be an interesting one. He's a, a genre spanner, he spans the genres. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, that'll be the next one. Um, we'll be back next week, though, with a kind of regular episode. Um, so until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.
0: And goodbye from me.